Welcome to the Portugal Podcast 2022 FIFA World Cup Part 4. As a Selecao seal a spot in the round of 16 with a 2-0 win against Uruguay following up their 3-2 win against Ghana. My name is Matthew Marshall and he's Tom Kinda Tom. What's happening? All systems go, isn't it? You know, we've been pretty upbeat and optimistic, I think, since day one about, uh, you know, Portugal's chances at this World Cup. And well, you know... They haven't been perfect performances, but two wins out of two. Can't say better than that, can you? And uh, I think overall, you've got to say very good performance yesterday against a high-quality team. Portugal deserved to win. And yeah, we're in the last 16. Bring it on. So, Matt, tell us your latest thoughts about what it's like being in Qatar. A little bit about the atmosphere yesterday. Looked great on TV here. And also in general about, uh, you know, you got any more thoughts about the tournament being hosted in Qatar? Well, Tom, I don't know. I never know what day it is. All I know is what games are on today. I'm, I'm living in the, the biggest Groundhog Day type situation. It's just incredible, mate. Um, the routine is wake up late, get a bit of work done, figure out how, what, what stadium I'm going to and how I'm going to get there, and then get from one stadium to the next stadium. I've been to every 10 o'clock game, I think, uh, since I've been here. And then, of course, the 10 o'clock game finishes at midnight and then you've got to find your way back. So you're getting back at two, something like that, and then a little bit more work and obviously, you know, calming down and get to sleep pretty late and then do it all again. So it's really bizarre. I'm just living in this weird world, but it changes a little bit now because there's no early games. So I've got a bit of a little bit of a change of uh, routine now with the first games on at 6 p.m. But I haven't really got much to report about talking to people because I haven't had time. Um... I've just been doing what I just said with that routine. But I've had a, some really good days, Tom. I, I went to that um, for a game against uh, Tunisia, Australia against Tunisia, which was a real big turning point as far as atmosphere in the stadium goes because Tunisian fans just brought it big time. I got to that press conference and asked Graham Arnold a question. And I was walking back uh, from the stadium to the, to the metro station and I was just... It was just bizarre as, as, as a kid growing up in Australia and, and supporting the Socceroos before I really, you know, got onto Portugal. Um, it was really kind of bizarre saying to myself, I just asked the Australian manager a question after winning a game at the World Cup. It was kind of a, a strange feeling. I'm not sure you, you can understand. And then I went to see Argentina beat Mexico and saw Leo Messi score and I got to sit next to my mate Jonathan Harding. So that was a really special day. And then I went to Belgium, Morocco, and that was really cool because the Moroccan fans just brought it big time as well. So a couple of really good turning points there. And then yesterday I had a really good game. I went to South Korea, Ghana. That was, that was my chance to knock off the eighth stadium. So I've been to all of the World Cup stadiums now. It didn't take me very long. And then, of course, Portugal, Uruguay. So, yeah, I've had some really, really good days and some good experiences. I guess the main thing I'll say is that the Ronaldo mania it's just insane. It's just insane. Um, in the stadiums, as you would have seen, so many Portugal supporters, but yeah, not many of them from Portugal. Most of them there, of course, just with the Ronaldo being a global superstar. And you're walking to the games and from the games, and people are just going nuts about Ronaldo. They're doing that, that his celebration. People are just mimicking his celebration everywhere you go. It's incredible to see. <laughs> All around the stadium, on the way to the metro station, the people are just mimicking his celebration everywhere you go. And the amount of shirts you see with his name on it is, is just full on. So you're really seeing that all these people that have that have you know taken Portugal on as as their team to support is is all down to Ronaldo. So yeah, you're really seeing that Ronaldo superstar effect in play here. Uh, and of course, as Portugal are winning games, then the hype gets bigger. So it is really fascinating to see. Interesting about the buses, because you have all these buses running between stadiums and two stadiums, and a lot of the bus drivers are getting lost, Tom. And the more people you speak to, especially the journalists, you're hearing these bizarre stories of uh, transport times getting uh, getting dragged out. But I was on a bus that where a guy got lost, and you know it was just basically a south to north journey. And I've, I'm looking at the GPS, and we're heading east towards the coast. I'm thinking, where are we going? 
And, um, you know, I was sitting right next to him and I looked at him and, and <laughs> he was a bit embarrassed. But And yesterday the guy wouldn't leave the stadium to go to the next one un unless he had another bus to follow because he just wasn't confident of getting from A to B. But one thing I just wanted to talk about, Tom, is alcohol. Because as you know, there's been a lot of talk about the alcohol situation here in Qatar. It, it's not that easy to get it. You need a license. You need to be living here. There's very strict conditions. You can drink alcohol, of course, in, in hotels. And um, in some of their fan zones here, it is very expensive. People know it's around what, 11, 12 euros for a can of Budweiser. What I've been thinking about is that, you know, I go to so many games, Tom, you do too. And in Germany, especially drinking, in England, you know, drinking is such a huge part of the culture anyway, but you attach it to the football and it's even more so. And of course, all the problems associated with that, I don't know how many to name, litter, unsocial behavior, and if you want to go deeper and just make it a social thing, you're talking about violence, you're talking about sexual encounters that wouldn't have happened without be being drunk and all the, the ramifications from that. It is quite interesting not to have any of that, any of those associated um, situations with, with excessive alcohol consumption here. And I think you're really seeing that there are a whole lot of benefits to, to not having alcohol. And I think most people that have been here for a while now, they're, they're kind of used to it and they're, they're finding ways and realizing that they can actually enjoy the game day experience without alcohol. As I said in the first podcast or second, I already did that experience in, in Israel following the under-17s. And the reason I didn't drink alcohol there was just because the cost of it was ridiculous. So I already had that experience at a tournament of not drinking any alcohol. So it's no real different for me. Uh, but I'm seeing, yeah, I, I'm starting to see that, that having no alcohol has a lot of good, good things about it. As I mentioned the other day, you feel super safe here, and probably the alcohol is, is one of the reasons for that too. There are a whole lot of benefits for no alcohol, Tom. Cold turkey, Matt. Cold turkey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's not such a big deal. Uh, maybe what people have made out of it that, that haven't come to Qatar, you know, or, or are not here. So that's just something that I've been thinking about that I thought I would bring up on the podcast because I don't have anything to report from talking to people or going out and seeing any of the sites because I just haven't had time. I'll come at you with, uh, with some conversations and things I learn from people next time. So uh, let's get into it, Tom. Portugal beat Uruguay 2-0. It was uh, an interesting first half, really similar to what we saw against Ghana, with Portugal really dominating a whole lot of the possession. But uh, unlike Ghana, we didn't see really any chances from Portugal. It was Uruguay with the best chance of the uh, first half. And Diogo Costa coming up big with a huge save in the 32nd minute. And then, second half, we saw Portugal slowly get on top. And it was uh, Bruno Fernandes with a cross. Ronaldo uh, beating the offside trap. Looked like he might have got a slight touch on it, but he wasn't given the goal. The ball found its way into the net. And then we saw a late penalty, beginning of added time, with Bruno Fernandes winning it and converting it. And how close did he go to a hat-trick, Tommy? <laughs> Goalkeeper made a, a pretty cool save there from short range. And then he hit the post. Of course, it was an easy man-of-the-match decision for Mr. Fernandes, who we talked about already before. We talked about how consistent he's becoming for the Selecao. So, Tom, just give us your overall impression of the game, sitting there in Lisboa watching on TV. What did you make of it? Yeah, I'd say that was a, uh, pretty much agree with that synopsis. Very, I think, overall, uh, another deserved win for Portugal. You've got to remember, Matt, you know, uh, people who tend to complain about the performances of the Selecao, I think looking at the just magnificent players which Portugal have and saying they should be overrunning teams. You know, that's Uruguay are a good team. They've got good players. You know, it's not realistic to expect Portugal to, to win this game, you know, 3 or 4 nil. 2 nil is a pretty good result and a deserved result, I think, a deserved win. I thought started really well, Portugal, controlled the game, didn't really... I thought they had trouble, uh, you know, they progressed the ball up to the last third, but then really had trouble kind of penetrating uh, Uruguay, perhaps a little bit of lack of creativity just in the final part of the pitch, <clears throat> not really being able to create chances. 
And then last 15 minutes of the first half, I thought Uruguay came back quite strongly. They were possibly the best team then. Uh, yeah, second half, I mean, when Portugal scored, you know, I thought, great, here we go again. Let's see if Portugal can this time kind of ram home their advantage. And I tell you, Matt, that was the worst part of the match. Straight after Portugal scored, 10, 15 minutes, I thought, uh-oh, here we go again. It just leaned like... <laughs> action replay, isn't it, of things we've seen so often uh, in recent matches and against uh, Spain and Serbia especially, they, they come up when Portugal get a lead and they just sit back and they were getting, they were dropping back deeper and deeper and, you know, Uruguay had a couple of good chances, hit the post and I just thought it's just a matter of time before they, they equalise but, you know, Fernando Santos, uh, we won't go over you know, the, the criticism which he gets, he just gets absolutely hammered <laughs> all the time from all quarters. But I think you have to give him credit here because especially that second set of uh, substitutions, the three substitutions quite late in the game, completely shut down the game from Portugal's point of view. That was possibly, I think, the most impressive thing about this Portugal performance. You know, when they made those changes, a little over 10 minutes of normal time left. And as we know in this tournament, You've got to add on it probably, you know, between five and ten minutes of stoppage time. Portugal just completely controlled it, you know. Look, I think that was their best period of the whole match, really. Scored another goal, almost scored another one or two. So, you know, as they say in Portugal, our ultimate imaging, our cafica, you know, the last, last kind of image is what stays in your head. So, yeah, that was a... You know, really, really impressive way that Portugal finished that match, showing good mental fortitude, intelligence, and also showing that, you know, this is a squad game, isn't it? The World Cup. And Portugal have got such strong depth in their squad, and they can really make changes, you know, uh, from the bench. And so, yeah, all pretty good. I suppose my only gripe would be, uh, this is, of course, one match where Fernando Santos probably won't be criticised much, but... I, I still think perhaps he could have made those changes a bit earlier. You know, if he'd, uh, if he'd made those changes, it's easy to say now, isn't it? But, you know, I think Portugal really took a risk in that period after they scored and uh, got away with it. But yeah, once the changes were made, superb performance. Yeah, my main criticism would be that when he brought on Rafael Leal for Ruben Neves, what was interesting was that he called over Bruno Fernandes to give him the instructions. And then Bruno ran over to pass them on, mainly to João Felix, who had to move from the left wing out to the right side. And he just looked lost. He just looked completely lost out there, and he didn't know where to be or what he was supposed to be doing. And I'm not sure why he didn't just make a sub for Felix at the same time. And, of course, we saw Felix pick up a, a yellow card. We saw him give away that dangerous free kick. But that would be my only criticism. It just didn't seem very well organised, and Felix just didn't really seem to know. Did, did it look like that way on TV? That was a substitute which really took people by surprise, wasn't it? Because, you know, it seemed to be caught. I think Ruben Neves was, he looked tired and he was getting a little bit overrun. And to be fair, he didn't, I don't think he had his best game yesterday. So I suppose everyone's just thinking, OK, Ruben Neves off, Joao Paulinho on. That's the, you know, the obvious substitution. So it was a real surprise when Neves came off and Rafael Leal came on, which I think quite a bold substitution. I think that was by... Fernando Santos, you know, I suppose his thinking was, you know, Portugal were getting a little bit overrun there and just, uh, you know, nothing going on in attack. And I suppose Fernando Santos thought, put on layout, real threat with his speed, can really get behind the Uruguay defence. That will kind of make them think twice about committing too, ma too many uh, players forward. Didn't really work out that way, perhaps, like you said, uh, there, Matt, you know, because Portugal players didn't really know how to reorganize themselves in that system. And so, uh, yeah, like I say, that was the really, really dangerous time. It's actually, some people have said, you know, Portugal lost all their shape and they looked vulnerable as soon as that sub was made. It was actually before the sub was made. You know, it's really as soon as Portugal scored, they scored in the 54th minute. That sub was made in the 69th minute, so that was 15 minutes later. Rafael Leal came on, but in those 15 minutes, you know, it was, was when uh, Uruguay were really on top. Santos did make an early sub, but yeah, that one seemed a little bit of a strange one. Well, you can kind of understand what he was trying, but I don't think it really worked out. And it was only with the second set of subs that Portugal really got control of the game again.
Yeah, exactly. And I think it is a legitimate criticism why sometimes he doesn't make changes a little bit earlier. But yeah, we can uh, keep an eye on that as we move through the tournament. So it must be a pretty good atmosphere in Portugal at the moment, Tom. Tell us what the uh, the major news outlets there are, uh, yeah, are well, saying after mm, last night. All the three sports dailies go with the same picture, which is Cristiano Ronaldo and Bruno uh, Fernandes embracing after, uh, I think, after the final whistle or perhaps after one of the goals. So, uh, yeah, Abola, they go for the headline, Perfect Prince, which I suppose is alluding to uh, Bruno Fernandes as the prince, with uh, that would be Ronaldo being the king, of course. <laughs> a sub-headline says, Goals from Bruno Fernandes, earns a place in the last 16, and avenges the 2018 defeat. As for record, same picture, a lot of talk about Bruno Fernandes. Interesting quote here by him. Uh, we want to win all our games. So I suppose that's talking, looking ahead to the third game. The headline in record uh, basically says, uh, it says Portugal faz sonhar. Yeah, Portugal are dreaming. Or they're making us dream. O jogo. Uh, again, same picture. Bruno Fernandes, Cristiano Ronaldo. Big embrace there. And it says, uh, Perfeitas num oit. Uh, perfect eight. I suppose they're alluding to the fact uh, Bruno Fernandes, of course, wears the number eight. And also in Portuguese, they around the 16, they call oitavas the final. I guess that's what that headline is all about. So, yeah, uh, you know, all pretty celebratory. Good to hear. There's no reason not to be <laughs> very happy after Portugal beat Uruguay. Let's go through the team, Tom. We saw Diogo Costa, obviously, go very close to a disastrous howler at the end of that game against Ghana, but he was came up big here with that huge save in the 32nd minute and also made a really nice intervention late on. That's good for his confidence to uh, to get back on board and keep a clean sheet. That's huge. And all the changes made by Santos here were things we expected to happen. We saw Nuno Mendes come in for Guerreiro. Uh, Carvalho came into central midfield to try and beef up that area, of course, for Otavio. And we saw Pep come into central defence for Danilo, which would have happened anyway, but of course Danilo picked up that rib injury, busted some ribs in training. So we're not sure if he's going to come back, even in this tournament. Let's just run through the defenders' time. I thought Joao Cancelo was better than he was against Ghana, and Pep was just his usual Pep. I mean, I don't think he put, really put a foot wrong all game. He was coming out of defence and closing down uh, situations, and uh, he was strong. Ruben Dias, I thought, he was at fault with William when they allowed Betancourt to basically run straight through them, um, which, which meant that Diogo Costa had to make that save. And of course, Nuno Mendes, this is just terrible because we talked about him so much. And of course, he had that muscle injury, ruled him out of the first game. But it looked like he ha hadn't really fully recovered. But he did take a pretty heavy knock, so I'm not going to jump to conclusions. But you would have to assume that whatever problem he had, he hadn't fully recovered. And this was terrible to see. He was in tears coming off the pitch to be substituted for Guerreiro. And that's really bad news, Tom. So... Um, what did you make of Diogo Costa and those defenders? Diogo Costa, I think Nathan, in his ratings article, made a good point, which I agree 100% with. Just showed really good mental fortitude, didn't he? You know, he looked pretty uh, crestfallen, I suppose we could say, after that, uh, you know, last gasp mistake against Ghana. Uh, you know, he, although it thankfully didn't result in a goal. You know, he was obviously pretty shaken, I think, and everyone just couldn't believe quite what had happened. But again, he's shown what all top elite professionals can do. You know, if you make a mistake, you just put it out of your mind, focus on the positives. And yeah, really good game, really great game. You know, that was a, that was a brilliant save against Benton, you know, Benton call because he was, yeah, clean through, you know, just uh, point blank. And uh, he made that kind of a futsal type save, well, handball type save when he just comes out, you know, spread himself really well, kept it out and absolutely crucial. You know, imagine if that had gone in, I'm pretty sure we would have been talking about a different game, probably a different result as well. So yeah, he was superb. As for the rest, yeah, you got to you got to pick out Pep, haven't you? I mean, this man is just incredible. Matt is going to be 40 years old in February, 40, <laughs> and he just performs. You know, <clears throat> the thing about Pep, you know, is obviously getting on. His fitness isn't what it used to be. You know, he misses a lot of games, even at club level for Porto. He's been, uh, he's missed the, you know, the odd month here and there, sometimes out for a bit longer. And one thing about Pep is incredible. Whenever he comes back, 
often he comes back, you know, after you would have thought not not doing much training after recovering from his injuries. You just don't, you don't. He doesn't miss a beat. You don't notice it at all. You know, he's not rusty. He's, uh, well, I suppose he's got you know 20, 20 years of top level football <laughs> at him. But I just find it absolutely incredible how he can perform at such a high level without any drop off at all after these injuries. So yeah, fantastic to see him back. That's a huge boost. As for Mendes, yeah, you know, I just second every word you said. Real shame for him personally if he's out of this tournament. He looked pretty distraught, didn't he, going off? And uh, and as well as a real shame for him, a huge shame also for Portugal and a big uh, blow, I'd say, for Portugal because you know he's just proved really in the last few months, the last few games, that he is Portugal's best left back. He is one of the best players on the team. I thought even yesterday, before he went off, I thought he was again really lively. You know, gave Portugal really good thrust down that left flank. Uh, you know, defended well. Just looked, just looked. You know, like he was all ready to go. So, yeah, big blow that is. But uh, we haven't got the news yet. Uh, Fernando Santos said they have to wait 24 hours before they can do tests. The quarterfinals should Portugal get there? I think it's about 10 days away, Matt. So. You know, fingers crossed, perhaps he can come back. Yeah, we'll wait and see. But I mentioned you need a lot of things to go your way to win a major tournament, and injuries is one of them. And that, that's, a, that's a huge blow for Portugal. And that will mean that Mr. Rafael Guerrero uh, will have to step up. Uh, we've, we've obviously talked a lot about him and some of the defensive deficiencies he has. But it also opens up the door for that uh, question we had Will we see Cancelo at left back and Delo at right back? And uh, that's more of a possibility now with Mendes out. I thought Ruben Dias, also what I did, didn't mention, was that that was just such a dumb yellow card to, uh, to receive when he basically protested. It got in the referee's face when, in between the moment when um, the penalty situation happened and uh, the referee went to check the VAR. So it had absolutely no bearing on what the referee was going to do. And now he's just put himself in danger of, um, of missing out on a game, which brings me to a question from Aaron, Tom, who wonders about the yellow card situation. When are they wiped out? That's after the quarterfinals. So they carry on from the group stage to the round of 16. But if you've only picked up one yellow card and you're still on one yellow card, then in the semifinals they'll be wiped out. And they, they did that so that players wouldn't miss the final after picking up a yellow card in the semifinals. So if we just quickly look through Portugal, we had Danilo. Uh, pick up a yellow card in the first game against Ghana and of course Bruno Fernandes with a pretty needless foul really late on uh, so those guys are all one booking away and here we had Ruben Neves uh, that was a pretty cynical foul Rolf Felix the one I mentioned before and Ruben Dias that's something I guess to keep an eye on Tom midfield we had Ruben Neves get another start and uh, William as we mentioned was likely to happen he came into the team and William was really doing what he does best there are a lot of occasions where he just mops up a lot of the drama caused by other players and he does a lot of uh, work that goes unnoticed. His distribution was pretty good, getting around, winning a lot of balls. But you'd have to say Ruben Neves is not having a whole lot of impact on the games. What did you make of those two guys, Tom? Yeah, agree, 100%. William, oh, what a player. I mean, I mentioned it in a previous podcast. I just can't for the life of me understand the, the criticism which he gets because he always does what, what William does, which is just really smooth operator. You know, living up to the nickname I gave him, the Velvet Tank. He's just really, you know, he's a big guy, but he's so smooth on the ball, isn't he? Such a good passer, so calm, just a calming influence. And that, those first 20 minutes or so, it was, it was amazing. It was just like a masterclass. Every time the ball came near him, he just did exactly what he was, you know, what you had to do in that situation. Sometimes in tight amount of space as well. It looked so calm uh, in comparison to most of the other players on, on both sides, to be honest, you know, <laughs> big World Cup match, but it just didn't seem to, to phase him at all. So, yeah, he was superb. And I think uh, as long as he keeps fit, I'll be very surprised if he's out of the team from here onwards. Neves, yeah, hasn't really got going, has he, this World Cup, you have to say. I think he's, yeah, looked a little bit uh, off the pace or his lack of pace. You know, he's not a pacey player. Obviously, that's not one of his attributes, but... That's kind of been exposed, I think, a little bit in both of these games. It's becoming to me more and more preferable, from my opinion, in a way, that uh, Polina should uh, should really take that spot. You know, I think when Polina came on, 
he's just a beast, isn't he? He had that one, <laughs> that one occasion where he just absolutely refused to let the Uruguay player go past him. <laughs> yeah, it was quite an, an amazing tussle of that because uh, he, I don't think he managed to stop him legitimately. So he said, "Okay, you know, I'm not going to stop you legitimately." He did, you know, he did the foul and he did it, but he's one of these clever players, a bit like Casemiro in uh, Brazil. You know, he's very physical, uh, commits a lot of fouls, but always seems to know. I don't know if it's his mannerisms or how he commits the fouls, but he always seems to know how to avert yellow cards as well. So, uh, so yeah, uh, that's one change which I would like to see coming forward. Yeah, we'll get into more detail about what we think will happen against South Korea a little bit later. But yeah, that all makes sense. Bernardo Silva was basically doing what he did against Ghana, Tom. He was all over the place once more. No real change in, in his role. What's interesting if you look at the heat maps, Tom, is that he spent a lot of time also on the right side with Bruno Fernandes. So it seems like that was part of the tactic to kind of overload the right-hand side. And of course, with uh, Joao Cancelo moving down that side, it does appear that that was a, a legitimate part of the tactics from Fernando Santos. But uh, again, he was just all over the place doing what he does best. And a lot of that sort of uh, work that doesn't really go noticed. It's interesting, isn't it, Matt? Because most people have been calling for years, really, for Bernardo Silva to be kind of made the, the creative fulcrum of this side. You know, how many times have we uh, heard it suggested that he should really be the man in the middle, you know, pulling the strings from the creative point of view? But it, it really seems that Bruno, you know, has taken over that role a little bit. And like you said, Bernardo uh, all over the place, but just such a workhorse, you know, rather than being kind of the creative hub of this team, almost the guy who just... Uh, you know, uh, like just make sure that Portugal, you know, don't get overrun. He's, he's just, we all know he's not a big physical specimen, but my God, he gets through so much work and is so tenacious. And yeah, he's been he's been really good. I think this tournament without kind of you know standing out, the amount of work he's doing is allowing. Uh, Bruno Fernandes to just shine the way he is. So yeah, those two are working really well. Yeah, well put. And we'll get on to Bruno now. But before we do that, I just wanted to say that a lot of people, I think, get fixated on what formation Santos is playing or where certain players are playing. But it, these two guys are just so fluid. And they're just moving around. They're so intelligent to know where to be and, and where to create overloads and where the danger is coming from that they don't really occupy any fixed positions. Um, we're seeing Bruno really more on the right-hand side in these first two games at the World Cup. And Bernardo, as I said, with that free roll. So I think that's something to keep in mind, that they're not really fixed in positions, although they do have where they spend majority of their time. And Bruno Fernandes, wow, he just keeps keeps improving. I can't believe, Tom, that it wasn't that long ago people <laughs> some people were saying that, that he should be dropped because that's clearly ridiculous. He is on fire. He is full of confidence. And as I said before, he, he went desperately close to a hat-trick, he is really becoming the main man in this team at the moment with, I guess, a little bit of a decline with Mr. Cristiano Ronaldo. What did you make of Bruno Fernandes? Yeah, absolutely. He's just, just taken his game to another level, hasn't it? We've talked on previous podcasts how his international career really didn't catch fire at all first few years. Kind of find it found it hard to really, you know, put in the kind of performances which he's been putting in for years for his club side, you know, Sporting and Manchester United. But yeah, last last year, 18 months, he's been fantastic, hasn't he? I remember, uh, I suppose, I think it was just before the Euros, actually, he had that uh, friendly, I think it's against Israel, really good again, couple of goals. His, the Euros didn't really go very well for him, didn't go well for hardly anyone, did it, in Portugal. But really, since then, I mean, go back to the game we were at in Porto, Matt, you know, against North Macedonia. He's the guy, of course, which guaranteed Portugal's place in the World Cup themselves, you know, those two goals in the in the, in the playoff final. And, yeah, since then, he's put in five or six really, really top performances, including, of course, most importantly, the two here. He's doing it frequently now and he's doing it consistently. So we all know the, you know, the ability he has. One thing also, Matt, which I'm really happy to see about Bruno Fernandes, I think it's, it's always been the case of him, and, uh, and Bernardo Silva, but they're doing it more and more now. The way they don't kind of play the game in Ronaldo's shadow. You know, they're such big players themselves. They've achieved so much. You know, they're such important players in their club side, you know, two of the biggest club sides in the world. 
you know that they don't really have to play second fiddle and they know that don't they so that, that's good because that just you know it gives Portugal much more balance of course we've talked about in the past and I think a lot of criticism fair criticism I would say aimed at Portugal is that they're just too focused on you know channeling everything towards Ronaldo teams now no longer have to kind of shut down one man and they know you shut down most of their threat uh, it's not like that anymore is it there's a multiple threats in this team. Yeah, exactly. It used to be, of course, so much focus on Ronaldo, but he doesn't have to be the match winner anymore. You can have Bruno steps up. We saw Joao Felix involved in all three goals against Ghana. Bernardo sort of not getting that close to goal. You're not seeing that many assists and goals for him, but yeah, for sure, Bruno Fernandes is a match winner. And um, he's one of the first names on the team sheet at the moment. Joao Felix, Tom, didn't have a massive game here. What I didn't, what I wasn't too happy about was that he was really just his positioning was really static on that left side. I would have, I would have liked to have seen him maybe move around a bit more. But he did some good things, but not as much influence, of course, uh, against Ghana. And as I mentioned, he was just completely lost when uh, Liao came on and he had to switch to the right wing. Uh, what did you make of Felix here? Yeah, you know, compared to the first game, it was night and day, wasn't it? He was just superb in, against Ghana. Well, just really decisive. But yeah, couldn't really couldn't really get into this game. He had that one shot, of course, in the second half, didn't he, from a tight angle into the side netting. But yeah, didn't do too much. I thought the thing which amazed me with this game was the battle with uh, Jimenez, isn't it? His club teammate at Atletico Madrid. My God, they were really going at it. Uh, and I don't know if there's some kind of bad blood or between them, or maybe it's not. I think I saw a quote from Jimenez saying something like, you know, Outside of football, he's my friend, but, you know, on the pitch, you know, he, he was my enemy yesterday, which I suppose is fair enough, isn't it? They, they both just want their team to win, but God, that, that looked like getting really feisty uh, at times. Not the best game from Joao Felix, but again, like we've mentioned, and as he's proved in the two previous Portuguese games, you know, can be a really decisive player for Portugal. Yeah, it was noticeable how close uh, Jimenez was getting to him. And we've, we've seen him get wound up. We saw it in the first game where, you know, he, he went head-to-head with the, that Ghana right back. And um, he's, a guy that, yeah, he's, a, good he's a guy that seems to have a pretty short fuse. So Jimenez knows him well. He was marking him. And um, that's something we have to keep in mind, that opposition you know, defenders are going to try and get him wound up and put him off his game. And he's going to have to overcome that. So... A lot of what Uruguay were doing, I wasn't a big fan of it, Tom. I thought it was a lot of what they were doing was just dirty. And that started early on with um, with Betancourt, basically that foul on Diaz. But of, of course, the referee, we've seen a lot of referees letting a whole lot go in this tournament. And when you do that with teams like Uruguay, then they're just going to push it all the way and, and just foul after foul after foul. And some of them were, were I thought, a bit dirty, but we'll put that to another side. Let's talk about Ronaldo. Of course, he, <laughs> he tried to claim the goal, uh, didn't get it. And there was a really interesting section where he just had, it looked like he had Joel Felix wide open. All he had to do was just roll it into Felix, who would have had one-on-one shot. And about a minute after that, he tried some ridiculous shot from about 40 yards away. But still did some useful things, Tom. But what, what we're also seeing now is that Santosh has no fear of taking him off. Santosh brought him off uh, late on against Garner and here with about 15 minutes to go. What did you make of Ronaldo and what did you think of um, getting substituted in both these games? I quite like Ronaldo, I have to say, in this tournament so far. He's obviously not the player that he has been, but I think he's been useful as well and he's been uh, linking up quite well. He's been coming, you know, dropping back, linking up quite nicely. You know, he realises now, I'm sure he realises he's not the, the be-all and end-all of this team. I think he's, he's been useful, you know, and that first goal, of course, some people have been making jokes about, you know, the fact he claimed it. it. Actually, you know, it looked like for all the world that it was his header, so <laughs> I certainly wouldn't blame him for that. But uh, also one thing you have to bear in mind, if Ronaldo wasn't there, that's not a goal. You know, the keeper just uh, just collects that cross. And also his run, his run is just perfectly timed. So, yeah, you know, he's got the, obviously, crucial in the first game as well, winning and converting the penalty. So I think he's doing OK. I'm... I'm pleased with uh, Ronaldo and I'm, yeah, especially pleased with, like you said, the fact that, you know, he comes off and didn't really seem to phase him at all. He didn't even seem surprised, did he? And there was no doubt about it that, uh, like we've mentioned earlier, that triple substitution, as soon as it happened, Portugal just completely took control of the game. So it was the right thing to do, no doubt about it. 
so yeah, it's been a useful it's been a useful uh, part of the side. Obviously, a completely different role to the last 15 years or so, where it's basically been the be all and end all almost of this Portugal side. But I think he can still play a very important role in this World Cup. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, good points. Without him making that run, it's not a goal. Everything we say about Ronaldo is obviously, you know, in relation to to what he's done in such a remarkable career. But yeah, he's obviously still a starter and has a huge role to play. I was watching the the warm-up a bit more closely than I usually do here. He is just so influential in that group. He is just pumping up the the players non-stop. He's He's just really such a big part of that team off the pitch. And I guess mentality-wise, and there's just no question that you know any of those thoughts about his interview and, and any of those things causing any friction—that's that's just that's just a non-story. Just on that, just on that, and his leadership qualities. I think even now, you know, when he he realizes that there are other players who are as important as him from you know just a purely football tech point of view, I think that's also helped him. You know, in his He's kind of taken on this leadership role, I think, to the next level. He realises that you know, that's almost, you could say, his, uh, you know, that's one of his chief uh, jobs, I suppose, one of his main jobs in this, in his role now in the Portugal national team. There was a brilliant video going around right at the end of the Ghana game. Uh, obviously, we just talked about it earlier, the Diogo Costa mistake, and, the, you know, he looked completely distraught. You know, goalkeepers, of course, it's such a psychological position, isn't it? If they haven't got their head in the right place, you know, it could be a big problem. And uh, Ronaldo saw that immediately, went straight over to him, you know, had a chat to him, talked about it. Then afterwards, it came out in the press what he's saying, you know, he's just saying, you know, listen, Diogo, was it a goal? Was it a goal? No, it wasn't. Okay, forget about it. It wasn't a goal. And then he, this video is really interesting because he's getting the other players also to G up. Diogo Costa, including Pep. I remember that you could see him clearly going to Pep, pointing at Diogo Costa, having a few words or whatever. So yeah, he's really taken on this leadership role, I think, to the next level. And whatever you think about him being captain, you know, I know some people haven't been a great fan of that over the years. I think now he's really, you know, matured into a really good captain for Portugal. Yeah, 100%. Okay, Tom, let's, uh, let's look forward to South Korea, Korea Republic. I don't know what we call them anymore, but we know who they are. And it's interesting, isn't it, that <laughs> Paolo Bento, a man... Isn't it bizarre, Tom, when you think that Paolo Bento managed Portugal for four years? And, of course, he was there at the 2014 World Cup when Portugal started that campaign with the biggest disaster that I can remember, where they lost 4-0 against Germany. And uh, he actually survived that World Cup, Tom, even though they didn't get out of the group stage. Uh, but they lost that first European qualifier, 1-0 to Albania. And he was gone. But um, it is bizarre, isn't it, when you think that Paolo Bento managed Portugal for a full four years. Just give us a bit of a synopsis, Tom, of, of who Paolo Bento is. Well, Lisbon born and bred. And uh, most of his career, or a lot of his career, was... a. Uh here in, in Lisbon. He started off at uh, Oriental, a small team, then went to Benfica, Estrela da Amadora, had a few years at Vitória de Guimarães. Also had quite a, quite a big spell abroad. I don't know if you know this, Matt, I think uh, Oviedo, I think he was there for about four seasons. Uh, it was the club he played most of his uh, career at, or he played the most games there than, than any other club. So he was a good player, you know, good, solid player. Uh, I wouldn't say he was spectacular, you know, holding midfielder, certainly not at the level of perhaps a lot of Portugal have done quite well at producing, you know, amazing players, haven't they, in, in that position, like, uh, you know, Paulo Souza or someone like that. He's, he wasn't at that level, but he was a good, solid player. And uh, another thing, you just talked about him being Portugal coach there in Brazil. Going back to his playing career, his final game, do you know what it was in a Portugal shirt? Matt, it was the game against South Korea in the 2002 World Cup, which of course was a game with very bad memory for Portugal. Uh, They crashed out of the 
World Cup in Japan and South Korea. Losing that game 1-0, they only needed a draw. And Bento played, and that was his final game in a Portugal shirt. Nice. So it's quite remarkable now that he comes back and is the the you know the final group game again is Portugal South Korea, but he's the South Korea manager. Yeah, his managerial career is quite interesting actually. He became a manager immediately when he hung up his boots at Sporting, uh, and uh, they don't really do player managers in Portugal like they do what they used to do in in England a lot. So he. As soon as he hung up his boots, he took over. Uh, I think it was from Jose Pizzeiro, if memory serves me right. And uh, he was very young. And I suppose at the start, it was a bit of a experimental move. He was there for four years, you know, and he did pretty well. Uh, he did pretty well. Uh, I think Portugal, uh, I think Sporting came second every season. There's one season I remember where they were really in the, in the hunt to win the league. Uh, just, I think last couple of games Porto just picked them so he did quite well there got the job at Portugal yeah four years it seems a long time Matt and of course we all remember how it ended so badly in the Brazil World Cup but to start with he did well you know he was only there for four years because he really did a good job took over from K-Raj and those first two years uh, he got Portugal to the Euros when they had a you know terrible start to that campaign and then at that Euros you know, Portugal were terrific. You know, they got to the semi-finals, uh, as you remember, and they only lost to Spain on penalties. And that was Spain, you know, 2012. So they were right in the middle of their, you know, amazing era, really, of what many people call the, the greatest national, or one of the greatest international sides of all time, when they were just winning everything in their World Cups and Euros. You know, and Portugal really went head-to-head -head with them. So... So, yeah, he did well. It all unraveled a little bit, of course, in the Brazil World Cup. But also another thing, I think, just to kind of briefly go back on his time as Portugal coach, I think when he was Portugal coach, he was perhaps a little bit unlucky because he, Portugal just didn't have anything like the amount of talent they have now and probably didn't have as much talent as they had previously. You know, he got a lot of stick for basically he'd picked the same 11 every single game. Uh, and you know had that Moutinho, Veloso, Meirelles midfield, and uh, he just chose you know just picked that game after game after game. But <clears throat> you know going just just uh, just talking about that midfield, you know they were all good players in their own rights. Of course, Moutinho, absolute legend. But you know Miguel Veloso, uh, Raul Moreles and João Moutinho compare that midfield to what Portugal can put on the pitch today. You know, it's got, uh, it's really no comparison, is it? So, so yeah, he's got, a, he's had a decent career, a decent management career, uh, a decent, uh, you know, playing career as well. Been unfortunate, Matt, you talked about the fact that you were at that game yesterday, uh, South Korea against Ghana. Absolutely incredible game, I think, one of the most enjoyable ones at, at the at, at the tournament. And of course, it ended with <laughs> Paolo Bento doing what he tends to do quite a lot. He always had a short fuse and his Portuguese as well. So that's kind of our <laughs> characteristic. And yeah, he just went absolutely ballistic at the end, didn't he? When uh, the referee pulled, um, blew for full time without letting Korea take that corner, got his red card. And so unfortunately for him, he won't be in the dugout uh, in this game against Portugal. Yeah, I missed it actually. I was packing up and I wanted to get out of there. And um, I actually missed that. So I'm a little bit disappointed about that. but. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I did jump to the end of his career, and uh, it was a decent achievement of you know holding Spain in that semi-final in 2012. But Tom, this is a guy that selected Miguel Veloso at left back in a World Cup game, and I'm not going to say any more than that. So let's move <laughs> on to South Korea. And yeah, I was there, and uh, it was a great game. I mean. South Korea really dominated the opening stages and then they found themselves 2-0 down at half-time. And then a couple of really quick goals to Cho Gi-sung, really putting his body on the line, both from crosses into the box. Yeah, it looked like they were going to perhaps take the lead, but then they conceded again and they couldn't find a way back. I'm not going to try and pronounce a whole lot of these names or pretend like I know who a lot of these players are, but for sure, everybody knows Hoang Ming Song. And what I noticed here was that almost every time he got the ball, Ghana were just double and triple teaming him, which is a pretty obvious tactic, isn't it? I mean, he's head and shoulders the best player in this team. 
but he spends most of the time on the left wing where he can't really hurt you as well so that's obviously something Portugal need to look at interesting for me that Lee Kang In a guy who I saw at the under 20 World Cup uh, he came off the bench and was really good he, uh, he set up the first goal so I'm not going to pretend as I say to know a whole lot about this team people can read the article on Portugal to get more of an insight into this team but I'm guessing Lee Kanging will start and of course yeah Hoang Min Song is the guy to, uh, to look out for. What I wanted to just talk about, which is something I mentioned in my preview, is that it's really interesting, isn't it, that Ghana went with a back three against Portugal, then they went switched to a back four against Korea. And then Uruguay started with a back four, and then they switched to a back three against Portugal. I got thinking about that Germany game. Is this something we're going to see more often from teams, where they, they, they think that the, the back three and the wing-backs is the best way to go against Portugal. Are we going to see more of this? We know how hard it is to break down that formation. When, when, you, when they lose the ball, they drop back into a back five, and their midfielders drop deep, and we've talked time and time again how hard it is for any team to break down that sort of a formation. And Portugal are no exception. It's, it's not easy to get through that wall. So that was just something I thought I'd bring up. Maybe we'll see what, what, uh, what, what South Korea do here. I guess we need to talk about what we might see from Santos. He said in the, he got asked in the press conference if he was going to make many changes for this game. He said no, but I don't believe him. I think he will. I think it's inevitable. And uh, that brings me to a couple of questions here, Tom, we've got for some listeners. And we'll start with Ash, who says, given how vulnerable the midfield and defence looks in transitions, should Santos drop Nevsh and bring in Palninha? And he also says, is it time to switch Cancelo to left-back and start at the low at right-back? I think we already answered that. Uh, I don't think he will. I think it'll still be Guadalajara at left-back. But, um, you know, it's a possibility. I don't think we'll see it in this game. It, it, you might see Delo start at right-back, but I don't think he'll, he'll take Cancelo over to left-back ahead of Guadalajara. Um, but do you, do you agree that Portugal looked really vulnerable in midfield and in transitions, Tom? I'm not sure I agree with that. I was only, there was that spell I said when they, you know, as soon as Portugal scored, where they, yeah, they did look, they just looked, uh, they did look vulnerable. But I think the mistake there was just they were just dropping too deep. Portugal were, you know, just inviting pressure onto them, really. I don't, I think Portugal have actually done quite a good job, especially, I'd say, the first halves of both of these games. I've been really impressed with the. Uh, level of control which Portugal have exerted over their opponents and uh, and also the amount of work they do when they're out of possession you know they seem to win the ball back much faster than than what's perhaps you know uh, we're more used to seeing for Portugal uh, not too sure if I would uh, you know agree that they're they've shown particular amount of vulnerability but as far as the personnel go yeah I think I agree I suppose with what Ash is uh, driving at here perhaps there will be quite a few changes for this for this next game uh, you know we've, we've talked about it time and again haven't we Matt such a deep squad Portugal have got and so many top quality options and uh, and we saw it yesterday you know Santos can use them can really use that to his to his benefit you know especially now we've got five substitutes haven't we so you know, it's good to, it's important to, I think, give these players uh, playing time, you know. Obviously, they want to, first and foremost, make sure they, they win the match or at least don't lose it. But I think, you know, they'll obviously go for the win. I've heard some people saying just, you know, swap out the whole 11. Just, uh, you know, give the first choice 11 a rest, bring in the second choice 11. And I remember... Philippe Scolari, Luis Philippe Scolari, doing exactly that in the 2008 Euros when Portugal won the first two games. They were ready through. He did exactly that, changed the whole team uh, for the last game against Switzerland, who were hosting the tournament. Portugal played terribly, uh, ended up losing that game. And I think it just kind of completely uh, halted the positive momentum which they had. In the next game, they played against Germany in the in the quarterfinals, lost that, and you know, just but just never really looked like the, the team that which we'd seen in the first two games. So, I think it is important that Portugal keep up their performance level. I would expect, like you, I'd expect a few changes, but I certainly wouldn't expect you know a whole uh, a whole new eleven. Yeah, I would agree, Tom. I don't think they are that vulnerable in transition. We have mentioned Guadalajara so many times, haven't we? Um, when players get behind him. 
Um, I think most of those pieces of danger you saw came in that period we, we mentioned. And also, you have to remember that uh, Diego Alonso really went for broke, didn't he, when he, when he took Godin off and, and uh, Matias Pacino and brought on two attackers. I mean, he just kept, kept bringing on attackers. So they're obviously going to create some opportunities. But I thought with William there and Nevs, they did a pretty good job um, on the most part of stopping you know, most of Uruguay's attacks. So I don't really see it that way. But for sure, yeah, I can see Palnina coming in for Nevs in the next game. There's, I'm very confident that will happen. Which brings us to Mitchell Tom, who says, uh, should we rest some of our players for our next game? If so, who, who would be in your starting 11? Well, I would say Delo will come in for Cancelo. I would say Antonio Silva will come in for Pep. Although Diaz, as we mentioned, is on, that, uh, on the yellow card. But I don't think it makes any sense to play Pep here. We, we already mentioned that it's unlikely he can play every four days. You want to make sure he's okay for the, uh, for the round of 16. So that seems to be a logical choice for me to bring in Antonio Silva for Pep. Delo for Cancelo. I'm not sure he'll, uh, he'll change the goalkeeper, especially after the, what happened to Diogo Costa late against Ghana. He, he probably still wants to try and get some more confidence and put that completely out of his brain. We talked about Palinha for Nevz. Uh, Joao Felix, I'm assuming, will get a rest here too. Interesting to see if Santos goes with someone like Gonzalo Ramos. I think Gonzalo Ramos has looked really good off the bench and, you know, he, he did really well against Nigeria. So he's pretty close. So they're the main ones I could see happening. Of course, here we, he brought uh, Nunes off the bench. Is that maybe a sign that Nunes is a bit closer than guys like Patinha, Joao Mario? I'm not sure. But I don't think he'll make mass changes. Definitely the ones I mentioned I can see happening. Any of those you agree with, Tom, and do you see any more? I'm glad you flagged up there, uh, Gonzalo Ramos, uh, Max. Yeah, I thought he... He looked really good, uh, even yesterday, you know, those last 15, 20 minutes really, I think, made quite a big difference. You know, the ball stuck when it, when it, was, uh, when it was near him, you know, linking up really well. So, yeah, he, he could certainly uh, be a possibility. I wouldn't be massively surprised if Cristiano Ronaldo even was, was given a rest in this game, didn't start. Uh, of course, one other option is perhaps as long as Portugal aren't kind of losing and especially I think if they manage to, to get a lead imagine by by half time I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Santos then making quite a few changes maybe at half time or shortly after half time you know guys like Bruno Fernandes Bernardo Silva perhaps taking them off Ronaldo if he starts certainly wouldn't expect him to play much more than, than one half of football or 60 minutes tops so, uh, yeah, a few changes like that. I suppose he just has to find a balance, hasn't he, between, you know, not disrupting this very positive momentum, giving players who haven't played much, you know, minutes, uh, keeping their confidence level up, trying to, yeah, strike the right balance to make sure that when it comes to the round of 16 game, the whole squad is really on their toes and ready. Yeah, I think the Antonio Silva one makes even more sense with the problem with Danilo. With Danilo being out injured, there's yeah. even more chance that you're going to need Antonio Silva at some stage if Portugal go deep in this tournament. So this is the perfect opportunity to get him in there to try and get you know get his nerves out of the way. That's going to be a massive moment yeah. for him. I mean, first first World Cup game so early in his career, and you don't want to be taking a chance of dropping him in at the deep end in one of the knockout games. So it's just a perfect opportunity for him to come in. I guess the last guy we need to really talk about is Rafael Liao. Now, I don't really want to go on about this time because I did it already. I've spoken a lot about Rafael Liao. But what I didn't really mention on the last few podcasts is that I, I, I saw him turning a corner, you know, with his attitude in, in those, those last few Nations League games. And, of course, he came off the bench against Ghana and scored a goal. But there was a really disappointing period of play here. I'm not sure if you saw it on television where he was out on the left wing and, and Santos and one of the assistant managers were, were screaming at him and, and, and telling him to go back and to help Guadalupe to, to nullify the danger there. And he basically just said, no, uh, I'm just going to stay where I am and try and get forward and score a goal. As I said, I, it seems like I'm somehow coming down too hard on, on Rafael Leao and I want to I wanna be respectful in case I'm, I'm reading it wrong, which I could be. But it, it just seems like, you know, is, is he saying like, why aren't I starting, guys? You know, like, what's going on here? I mean, is it something that sort of basic? Because that's exactly what I said at the Under-20 World Cup, even though he was starting there. But 
I thought that the origins of, of what was my perception of a bad attitude was related to the fact that he thinks he should be starter all the time and, and, and one of the first names on the team sheet. Like I said, I might be reading too much into this, but I mean, it just doesn't look that great. It just, a lot of things just don't look that great. But again, if we're talking about players that uh, could come into the starting side, then, then he would have to be really high on the list. Yeah, yeah, possibly. It's interesting, Matt, yeah, what you say. I didn't actually notice that. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting you flagging it up. I think it's kind of his style of play, isn't it? I think he, you know, like you say, maybe uh, he doesn't really do himself many favours with that kind of languid way of walking around the pitch. Um, no, even the uh, even his manager at, um, at Milan yeah, has talked about this, has been asked about this, and he's talked about this, about his you know attitude or perceived less than 100% committed attitude, you know, on occasion. He said uh, he should try and change his body language, you know, even because he, he kind of gives off these vibes, these negative vibes a little bit with, his, with that kind of attitude. So, but I think some of that is just his, just his style. So we have to kind of take it with a pinch of salt. But yeah, let's wait and see. I mean, he showed in the first game, didn't he? What a, and he showed in Italy really for a season and a half now, what a, fantastic player he can be and what a fantastic weapon he can be so yeah hopefully uh, you know his head will be in the right place yeah it's going to be very interesting what happens with Santos and what he does with Liao here because if he makes a whole lot of changes and Liao isn't one of them and um, you know I'm, I'm kind of on the ball here with what I've been saying then that that's that's going to make it even worse but um, as I say I don't want to dwell on it too much because it is you know it is speculation and I, I need to be respectful uh, uh, because of all the reasons also you just mentioned. So that's pretty much a wrap, Tom. I guess we've got one little question here from Tiago. says, what are the permutations for first or second in the group? Uh, will it affect the likelihood of resting key players? Second part, no, I don't think so. But it obviously goes on points and then goal difference. So if Ghana win and Portugal lose, it goes on goal difference. So Ghana would have to win by a couple of goals. Portugal lose by a couple of goals. Unlikely to happen, but it's possible. And then you're talking about numbers of goals scored in the group matches. And then it goes to points between the teams. So Portugal would, would, would go through there. So quite a few things have to happen, but I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not thinking about that, Tom. I don't want to go there. I don't even want to contemplate that. And one thing we haven't talked about at all in this, uh, in this podcast series is one thing that I talked about that is just so important in major tournaments, and that is the path to the final, Tom. We saw Portugal really screwed themselves over in the 2018 World Cup, Tom, where they conceded that late goal to uh, Iran, was it? And that put them in the really difficult part of the draw, which was against Uruguay, <laughs> funnily enough. The way that the draw is working out here and the way that it looks like going, I'm not going to go into it right now. I'll save that for the next podcast, but... It is looking really good for Portugal if they manage to uh, to hold on to first spot here. So, yeah, we talked about the the Mendes situation not good, uh, but form is kind of looking pretty good, I would say, with guys like Bruno Fernandes, and the path to the final is looking pretty good. So, if you talk about those three factors you need in a in a major tournament, then two of them are looking pretty good for Portugal. So that's something we need to mention uh, at the next uh, in the next podcast time when we know exactly. Who, who is who and which teams are in the, the different parts of the draw. One thing I just wanted to finish on, Tom, that I didn't touch on with uh, the Uruguay was uh, the press conference with, uh, with Fernando Santos. I did get a question in time. I asked him, was this result a bit more significant because of what happened in 2018? Does it kind of show that your team has, has progressed? Is it, are they better than what they were four years ago? And of course, he, he wouldn't get drawn into that. I didn't really get the answer I was hoping for. Uh, he basically said, no, like that was a knockout game and this was a different game. But I think, Tom, I mean, if it was me, if I was a player and I saw, as soon as the draw came out and you saw Uruguay, as I mentioned in my report, 10 of the players in Portugal's current squad were in that squad. Not all of them played in that game in Sochi, but, you know, they were part of that team. And I, surely, as soon as you saw Uruguay in your group, you're thinking, game on. Yeah, well, Matt, you're, you're absolutely right, you know, because, of course, I suppose Santos Day giving the, you know, kind of politically correct answer, but, and, you know, even before these games, isn't it, people, a lot of times the players say, oh, you know, revenge isn't a word we think about in football, but uh, it's interesting looking at the post-match quotes, and uh, all the quotes, of course, by the way, you can find in on Portugal.net, uh, and uh, I thought Pep's was very interesting, 
because he exactly made this point. You just you you, you just said, Matt. Uh, his quote was something like, uh, "Well, I'll just pull it up here." Uh, well, he said something like, uh, "Yeah, you know, it was important for us this game. We played really well, and it was really nice to get this victory because we were knocked out by them in the last World Cup, and we we felt that you know it, it was an un, unfair, it was an unjust unjust result four years ago in Russia. Uh, you know, if you remember, kind of Portugal had." Pretty much the majority of the possession in that game ended up losing it, and so yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt, like you said there, Matt, ten players were involved in that game uh, who are in Qatar right now. So yeah, absolutely, it will definitely uh, be a sweet victory this one for that reason. Yeah, yeah, I think it does mean something, Tom. I, I think it means something. I mean, obviously, it's just two games in isolation. But I think there's just something there. There's just something there that, that gives you a bit more enthusiasm, a bit more hope, a bit more confidence that this, this team is better, this squad is better. And I think if I think in Sochi, Bruno Fernandes didn't even get off the bench, if, if I'm correct. And I think if I'm right, yeah, Bernardo Silva actually, uh, I think he started on the bench, Bernardo Silva, or maybe he moved position. Because I remember he was uh, almost anonymous in the, in the first half. Second half, he just was superb in, in the game. I'm talking about a game in Russia, so uh, so yeah, you know, a lot of memories, a lot of memories certainly in that game, and yeah, you're right, it's just human nature, isn't it? If you're thinking, look, we lost to these guys four years ago, we've just beaten them two nil, you know, well on top, fully deserved victory. We're in good shape. We're in much better shape than we were four years ago. It's certainly got to give them a boost, hasn't it? I do, it? I do, I think so, and I think it's just a nice way to also end this podcast with a, you know. And I thought that this Portugal team, this squad, is a lot better than it was four years ago, you know. So, um, yeah, nice way to finish up, Tom. Nice chatting to you. And hopefully uh, the next time we chat will be after another victory against uh, Korea Republic, South Korea. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for all your, uh, the people that sent us, uh, you know, nice uh, positive messages about the podcast. It does, uh, it does make us feel good. Enjoy the match. We are done here. Borsa! And listen now to the rain I feel that water Licking at my feet again And I don't want to see this child no more Wasting my days on a factory floor The first thing you know I'll be back in my river Yes, the first thing you know I'll be back in my river Yes, the first thing you know I'll be back in my river again
Fino, fino.